What's up, everybody, and welcome to a very special first episode of 2022 of the Rico's Watches podcast. I am your host, Eric, and I am here today with Justin, who is uh, known as the Restorian on uh, Instagram, but he's got a very lengthy resume of contributions to uh, various publications in the watch space, uh, including Hodinkee, Blog to Watch, uh, Gear Patrol, and several others. Um, and he's here today just to talk to us about his collection, his passions uh, within this uh, already very niche hobby, and then the even further niches he sort of established within his own uh, space as well. And just uh, really hear about kind of where this all started for him. So with that today, welcome Justin, and I'm very excited to have you on uh, Season 2, Episode 1 of the show. Yeah, thanks a lot, man. It's good to be here. Good to be my very first podcast. So uh, ready to get it done and, and talk watches for sure. Absolutely, man. Absolutely. Before we kind of dive into the, the nuts and bolts of everything, what do you got on the wrist today? I am wearing a Seiko 6306. So the, the sort of uh, original turtle. So very it's nice. a 19, 1979. And this is one that... Uh, Cole Pennington wrote up on Hodinkee last, well, two years ago now. So 2020, he wrote it up. Yeah, that's a, that's a wonderful, uh, wonderful article there that you had and uh, really, really cool watch. Is it a Scuba Pro or what is the, uh, what's the designation on that one? Okay, so yeah, so to, to get um, ultra nerdy early, um, so, so yeah, your 6306, you have your standard and then you have Scuba Pro 450s, mm -hmm. which I think for uh for quite a while we're like sort of a grail seiko dive watch and i think um justifiably so they were sold in dive shops in japan um they have big bold scoop pro 450 text on the dial um mine is is uh i think now we can sort of just call it an msst mm. um because it has additional dial, dial text like the scuba pro uh, okay. but instead of instead of that it says msst and then a, a date range so mine says MSST 1979 to 80. Um, and there are some, there's very few examples. I think total I've found four, um, two with collectors. I own one and there's another collector who owns one um, with different date ranges. So his says 78 to 79, mine says 79 to 80. Um, and then I found two of them that belong to the original owners who actually received them in Japan or not in Japan in Antarctica. Um, during the program. So MSST was a, a, a deep, deep drilling program in Antarctica in McMurdo Sound um, from 78 to 80 is how long it lasted. So. so how does it work with a program like that? Like obviously the way things were you know, done back then is very different from the way things are done now. How do you get, I guess, like a brand like Seiko or something like that associated with a program like that to just provide pieces to these guys who are doing drilling or, or you go, you hear about the deep diving programs and space programs, you know, I, obviously the, the, uh, like Omega's relationship with, with NASA has been heavily documented and discussed, but you know, with a drilling program in Antarctica, how do they end up with these Seiko turtles on their wrists? Yeah, that's a good question. So, so, I did a lot of research on this and I'm by no means an expert, but I also don't think anybody is. I mean, they were not even known to the community really like five years ago. So I'm as much an expert as anybody can be on them, I think. Uh, so, so to look at it, um, these programs were, were joint programs between different countries, all sort of working in unison to, to you know, further science in Antarctica. Um, a lot of it was, was uh, relating to climate change, things like that. 
um, and just the history of, of the ice shelves themselves. Um, so this was so this was mainly Japan, uh, New Zealand, the U.S., um, and maybe some others, but those were the, probably the big three that took part. Um, and there were multiple programs that that the same sort of like entities cooperated on. So so uh, earlier than my 6306 is a 6105. I think everybody's pretty familiar with 6105s, mm -hmm. the, the Willard, right? Um, I, I have one as well. But uh, those were used in something called the Dry Valley Drilling Program, DVDP. And there are a handful of examples of, of 6105s with that printed on the dial. So just, li just like mine, just a different program, but they have DVDP and then a year range, 73 to 76. Then there's my 6306. Um, and and the, the common denominator was, was a geochemist from Japan um, named Dr. Tetsuya Tori. And I think what happened was, because you brought up Omega with space flight, right? And then uh, Ploprofs, you know, being given to deep divers um, for testing and things like that. Uh, this was, I think, a little bit different. My best understanding of it is that Dr. Tori from, from uh, the Japanese Antarctic Research uh, Expedition program there, he, it's big in Japan from my understanding to give people gifts and he often would, you know, you'd get to your hotel room. This is talking to scientists who were involved in the program. They said they'd get to their hotel room in Japan um, before leaving for Antarctica and they would have a bottle of like American whiskey that, you know, from Dr. Tori and his team. So most of these, I think, were, were he must have had a good relationship with Seiko and likely was proud of the fact that Seiko was a Japanese, you know, manufacturer. Mm. And so my guess is he worked with Seiko just to have these dials specially made, likely from the factory, because the print, um, you can tell the printing's done in the same manner as the rest of the dial text. So, so yeah, these would have been gifts for like lead scientists. Um, they wouldn't have been given to everybody. They would have been like lead scientists, uh, the people in charge of the Antarctic base at the time. So like the managers and stuff, uh, maybe pilots or people involved in like dropping off supplies. Mm -hmm. Um, but that would, that would explain why there's so few. So yeah, they were, uh, they were really sort of, I think like, uh, thanks for your help on the program. Welcome to the project kind of gift that people received. That's um, incredible. I mean, I've never yeah. heard of I've never heard about any of these sort of uh, other references. I mean, obviously, the very prominent one uh, within the 6306, 6309 uh, yeah. kind of uh, catalog is the Scuba Pro 450, as you mentioned, but you don't really hear about a lot of these other ones. Do you have just for the people that might watch this on YouTube instead of listening to it on the, uh, on yeah. the podcast platforms? Do you have any you can kind of show up on the camera or anything like that? Yeah, I can definitely show my my MSST here, and it's at a good time. You can I don't know how well you can see the text, but there's a little bit of additional text there at the bottom, just above like the um, depth rating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So MST, MSST nineteen seventy nine to eighty, and then water water resist one hundred and fifty meters, and that's the only differentiator on these. Hmm. Um, there's no case back engraving, you know, nothing special there. It's all. Um, although, in my opinion, if, if if I were given the option between a case back engraving and additional print on a dial i would take the additional print pretty much every time you know there's there's special case backs and i have a watch over here like that but um for seiko to go out of their way to produce a, such a limited run i mean scoop scoop pro 450s i'm not an expert but you're talking hundreds of them at least mm -hmm. you know probably in the hundreds i don't think they probably made thousands but 
Um, and those were available as long as you went to a dive shop in Japan, which is, mm. you know, probably weren't too many people, but you could just buy those. These were something you could never buy. Mm-hmm. Well, obviously, yes, you can, because I bought mine on eBay. But initially, obviously, they weren't something you could just buy. Mm. And uh, my guess is there, well, and um, the scientists I spoke with who received them, they, you know, they don't know. And, and a lot of them honestly don't care. Like, you know, they're not watch people. Uh but they said probably there's 10 or less that were given out. And like I said, I can sort of account for four, four of them. So maybe there's like six more out there in the wild for collectors to find, you know? Yeah, that's unreal. I mean, that's a, a truly limited piece with an incredible story. And I guess part of probably where your name comes from for your Instagram page, the Restorian is deep diving yep. into that history of these pieces <clears> and really <throat> finding out what the story is behind them right yeah which i think is which i think is incredible uh thank you for sharing all of that that i I blew my mind for my uh wrist check because i I always forget that was the one that was my new year's resolutions i always forget to do my wrist check when i'm on the show i made sure that i i'm going to remember to do that as many times as i can in 2022 uh i I tried to pick a piece because i knew you you were really into this kind of niche pieces and and learning the history of pieces a little bit and and like my go-to as most listeners of the show know has always been my pelagos but it's a piece that doesn't Mm -hmm. have i feel like a lot of established interesting history with it yet and i already went deep into doxa with uh dr miller there who i know is a a mutual acquaintance of both of ours and you have some history working with him as well too which i'd love to chat about so the only really historically significant piece i could find that had an interesting story behind it was my uh eterna contiki super uh, 1973. It's the reissue. It's not the original because yep. I don't have 20 grand sitting around to pick up <laughs> pick up an original right. uh, that I put on to a uh, diabolic strap, um, custom canvas strap in Desert Tan with a little bit of Hebrew on the, the uh, on the uh, strap that kind of is significant to where some of the history of it. Were you familiar with the history of the watch at all, or kind of where it kind of made some of its fame? A little bit. I mean, I'm familiar with the the IDF Israeli mm-hmm. Defense Force connection. Um, mm-hmm. I, I I wouldn't say it's like I haven't written about it, so I'm not like extremely knowledgeable. But I have a watch. I didn't get it out, but I have a watch back here with the same uh, bezel. You mm-hmm. know, it's you see that a lot with vintage watches. You know, other this is a brand called Nautilus, mm-hmm. uh, which was a German dive brand back in like the 70s mm-hmm. and up into the 80s. And they would just buy parts from different, you know, it has, it has, uh, yeah, the IDF Contiki bezel and then a case that's similar to the Scuba Pro 500. It's mm-hmm. just like a Franken watch back in the day. They just sourced whatever they could. So, um, yeah, I yeah. mean, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting piece. I mean, the history uh, with it, with the IDF is, it's another one of those ones where it's really hard to find a lot of, like, a lot of interesting yeah. history about it. Essentially, it was just, it was issued sometime around the 1970s to the idf a bunch Mm -hmm. of guys wore them uh they had their own kind of like mod uh display markings on the back and things like that and then you started seeing them pop up i'd say in like the early 2010s uh, quite a bit in auction and whatnot and then they kind of just got people excited about that and that's really it there's not much i I know like they went through a lot of different brands and watches during that time period you know when they were trying to kind of establish you know the, the appropriate um the appropriate kind of 
equipment and regulations for equipment with their soldiers and their military. I know like the, these were, um, from what I could find, were actually specifically issued to like their equivalent of like the Navy SEALs, which was like the Shiatet mm-hmm. uh, 13, I think it's pronounced, yeah. what it's called, their Flotilla 13, which is kind of neat. Um, but that's really it. I think it's just one of those, like, and, and the, the reproduction they made was only limited to 1,973 of them. Uh, so okay. I, thought, I thought that was kind of a cool thing. Like, I don't really have, I've never really been into limited watches, but this was what was my only really limited piece that I've picked up. And mm-hmm. um, I think it's just kind of an underappreciated brand, generally. Eterna, I think, is kind of an underappreciated yeah. brand. And I think that uh, this was sort of a more under underappreciated piece. But I love it. I thought it was a cool piece. And I, I tried to think of something that would be at least a little interesting for you as the guest when you came on. So Yeah. No, I, I dig it. I mean, it's it's a lot... You know, it's got the classic 70s sort of deep diver case, mm-hmm. you know, which I have a few watches like that. Um, yeah, I think it's a great watch. I mean, I think it's cool and it's it's uh, it's limited. And like you said, it, people who know that military history, I mean, military watches in general, um, I would say aren't, I follow like military watch resource, you know, I, I, I follow along and I have some buddies who are really, really into military, mm-hmm. but there's just so much to learn. Oh yeah. And there's so many obscure, issued like scuba pro 500s and then idf contiki's you know there's so many things to follow it's overwhelming you know well, i can't keep up with it and you only know and then we only know what actually has been properly documented yeah. right there's so much stuff mm-hmm. that's just sort of been lost to like the the ether of time over the, yeah. the decades that we'll just never know or it can never really confirm either as well right so yeah absolutely yeah but enough about my watch and what i'm doing for 2022 yeah. Tell us about you, man. I mean, where did all of this start for you? How did you get into this hobby? How did you get into writing and 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 the the significant work you've been putting into the community and and the the publications in the space? Like, tell us about you, man. Where did this all begin? Yeah, yeah. So um, this is like the origin story question, and I don't have a great. I always wish I had a cooler origin story, and I think I've heard others say the same. Um, I was not really into watches. Like growing up, I wasn't into watches, and I wouldn't say that my dad was or my grand. You know, nobody in my family really was. Um, but I've always kind of been a collector of things. I've always had hobbies, mm-hmm. and I have um, an identical twin brother. He's a minute older than me. Um, his Instagram is at Foglark, F O G L A R K. He has some very cool watches, so I'll plug him real quick. But sure. uh, he bought um, a Seiko years ago, like a yobokis it was like a customized Mm. seiko and he bought it and uh wore it on a trip to alaska that we took as a family and that around that same time i was graduating with my undergraduate degree and it was like well what do you want for graduation and i thought well maybe i'll get a watch and so that's when i started learning a little bit and i ended up with a a getting a watch from my parents a xeno explorer so it's just like an explorer homage it's small, you know, it's like 34, 35 millimeters, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wore that quite a bit. And then I think my brother and I have a bad habit of sort of like, it's not a competition, but it's always like one person sort of like feeds the other and then you start getting more and more into it. And I think you see that regardless of relationship, but like in the watch community, if you have like good buddies in mm-hmm. the community, they're like, hey, I just picked up this North flag, you know? And it just, it's like, it always pushes you to, to get more, at least for me. So, um, yeah, my brother picked up a, um, a Halios, uh, a Halios Tropic, which is an older model now, but it was, mm-hmm. it was like real bulky kind of 
well, not real bulky. It was a bulky dive watch, though. And I remember at the time being like, that thing is ridiculous. Like, it's too big. Uh, I would never wear a watch that big. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's crazy. And then literally from there, it just spiraled in terms of my own collecting. You know, I've bought and sold, like a lot of us, I don't know how many watches. You know, I just, they come and go, and I try to figure out what I like. And then I would say, I'm trying to think, uh, I got this 6306, which we've already covered, but I got that on eBay. Mm-hmm. It was it was buy it now. The price was a little bit higher than maybe a standard 6306, but it wasn't, you know, it wasn't 10,000 or something crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wasn't searching it out at all. I wasn't even really searching out a 6306 because between a 6306 and a 6309, I would just buy a 6309. If I wanted a turtle, the the differences between the two, I wouldn't I wouldn't pay extra for a 6306. Mm-hmm. A Scuba Pro 450 or my MSST, definitely. But a standard model, to the naked eye, they just look the same, mm-hmm. right? Um, so I bought that on eBay, and that's I had done some really really lightning fast research to see what MSST because it didn't say in the description what it meant. I think it said special dial markings and possibly military. Um, But I was able to quickly sort of suss out what I thought it was related to based off the years and the um, acronym. And I bought it and then it was just a ton of research. That's when I really got into like, uh, I found a report of the program. Um, It's pretty well documented. So there's scientific reports of all their findings, the people involved, what their roles were, you know, all of that and fortunately with these scientific programs um, a lot of these people luckily this was 79 to 80 a lot of these people are still around mm-hmm. i mean some of them at least so and a lot of them are in academia you know they're phds um, and some of them still work so i was able to track down two or three people from the program just by finding their um university email address because they would be like you know head of head of geology or geoscience or physics or whatever so I was able to track them down and they sort of confirmed like, oh, I've got one of those. One of them said, oh, I've got one sitting here in my drawer, you know? Okay. And another one said, oh, I've got one of those in my safety deposit box. And they could tell me where they got it, who gave it to them, how much they thought it was impractical for Antarctica. You know, they all, all of them are like, I think there's a great quote. So I worked, so I found all that info and then I worked with um, a guy at a red bar meetup here in Kansas City said, hey, you should reach out to Cole Pennington on Hodinkee, which I already followed. Um, he said, you should reach out to Cole. He loves Seiko. He'd probably be into that that model with all the research you've done. So I reached out to Cole and then, you know, I've been talking to Cole for years now. Um, and then it was like real deep research. He wrote the article. Uh, he published it. It was great. We got some good quotes from the, the, uh, the professors and everyone who was involved in the program. And then it was, uh, you know, a couple of years ago that it was like, well, maybe I'll keep researching. I'll start my own blog. I mean, I like to write. Uh, I've always been decent at it. I just didn't really know where to apply it. Mm-hmm. Um, and I had time. So I thought, well, I'll start a blog. And uh, a good friend of mine actually, I kept saying I would do it. You know, I think people probably do that with like podcasts and stuff too. Like I'm going to start a podcast 2020. And then they're like, oh, I'll do it late 2020, 2021. So I had been doing that for a while. And a buddy of mine was like, well, what would you call it if you started a blog? You know? And I said, well, I don't know, the Restorian I think is funny. And uh, and so I he actually bought me the like domain name, you know, without telling, you know, until I, after he bought it, he told me. So it was like, well, now I sort of have to start it 
because a friend of mine has spent money on like securing that domain. Yeah, so I started it and I, uh, having a brother who's like really into watches is, is convenient because he'll send me, oh, I found this story or I found this watch with a cool engraving you should look into. So as much as we feed each other's habit, it's also nice to have somebody who can help me dig up stories, you know? So, so the Restorian is really, um, I try to focus on, on interesting historical connections or models. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I, there's some concern about whether or not that's a sustainable, <laughs> you know, it, it's not like I can just, I have an unending supply of these stories, you know, they, they pop up when they pop up. A lot have already been covered. I don't really like um, rewriting what other people wrote, mm-hmm. you know, sometimes what's out there is sufficient and I don't want to just, you know, and I use their sometimes other people's writing as a resource of my own. I don't want to just rewrite, rephrase what they already did because mm-hmm. they're the ones who put in the work researching it. So it's a little bit hard to consistently update my blog, but yeah, so that got me into that. So, so working with Colt Hodinkee got me, I wrote some stuff and sent it into gear patrol gear patrol gave me like a a lot of publications seem to do this but they give you like a trial you know trial like uh for gear patrol i want to say it was like top five vintage seikos under 500 dollars, something like that buying guide um so i did that and then i did a couple things for them freelance and then uh, i think that got me to a blog to watch where i've done a bunch of um, sponsored posts, which is completely different from what I typically write, but sponsored posts, things like that. That's a lot more new releases and, you know, it's, it's different. Um, and then, yeah. And then writing for my blog and, and other sites have purchased things like craft and tailored has, has, uh, posted some of my stories on their, on their blog side. And, um, Adrian at Bark and Jack, he published one of mine about a submariner used in tech tight, um, back in the late sixties. So yeah, it's uh, it's it's just it's I keep kind of going wherever it leads me, and it's I didn't have a plan to write for all those sites or anything, but um, it's a nice little side job, and it keeps me. I'm already doing so much research in the hobby. I'm so into watches that it might as well <laughs> might as well use it for some good, you know? Yeah, well, it's it's I find that's kind of one of the cool things about when you're doing something like that as kind of like your side hobby is that you can kind of just yeah. let it go where it takes you, right? You just you're doing something. You got something to keep you interested and involved. And if it you know leads to another opportunity or another publication or whatever, then hey, great. If not, and it's a few months without anything, then it's not like you like watches any less because of it. You're just gonna right. do your own thing, right? So, I think that's I think that's awesome. And then you also uh, kind of how we ended up starting to chat with each other was because of your work also with uh, Doctor Miller. For the he wrote the Doxa books, but you assisted with the Aquastar book, correct? <clears throat> yes, I I, I think. Um, contributed is probably the best word just because it's not like I, I didn't really write anything, you know, I provided some, uh, some images and some information, um, about, about a model that I have about, um, this, I don't know how we can see it, but this is an old, these, these things reflect really, really bad, but Mm. an old Aquastar 63, um, I wrote up for my site and I had talked to, um, Rick Murai and Pete uh, Miller, because um, I was trying to figure out if there was any documented history of the Aquasar 63 being used in Sea Lab 2, which was, you know, a deep diving um, habitat in the mid 60s um, by the U.S. Navy. So, you know, saturation diving in the mid 60s. Um, there wasn't any record of it. 
So, um, so that's worth noting. But but my watch is engraved with C Lab Two on the case back. Um, so I mean, I suspected there was, but uh, the C Lab watch, as people know it, is a Ro you know Rolex Submariner, Rolex Sea Dweller. Those kind of are the ones people know. Um, so yeah, I did. I contributed to that book and uh, wrote quite a bit about C Lab. I mean, I, I was pretty deep into the the C Lab research for quite a while, and I have a couple stories on my blog about. Um, the Aquastar that I own, and then also um, just other watches that were used in C Lab. You know what? I tend to be like that. I sort of like the watches that maybe aren't featured as much. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. because there were there were uh, quite a handful of watches that were used in the habitat that were not really documented, other than just in photos that I got. So um it's fun to highlight that you know well, and going back to what you were saying earlier like there's so much stuff already out there about the well-documented <clears throat> pieces right so yes, it allows yes. you to kind of provide that opportunity to uh, give information to the community and to your listeners and, or your uh, readers i suppose uh yeah about other pieces that haven't necessarily been highlighted before um yeah. and, and so with your piece uh being a c lab uh, engraved mm -hmm. aqua or uh, aquastar is there any yep. Is, so what is sort of the story you were able to kind of put together regarding that piece then? Yeah, yeah. I, I, it's been a while since I wrote that. But um, so my brother actually sent me, um, this was another eBay. Honestly, almost all of my watches I found on eBay. Okay. I mean, really, like all the, like a lot of them are just uh, good deals. You know, I just, mm -hmm. I see it and I'm like, oh, I got to pick that up. Um, this one, I, I still think was a good deal, but it was, it wasn't inexpensive and it was before Aquastar was relaunched. So... Aquastar now, I mean, these, these 63s have seen kind of a little bit of a resurgence. I think people are starting to pay more for vintage models because the brand has more attention, right? Mm -hmm. um, so, so my brother sent me this and said, hey, um, this thing says C-Lab on the case back, or at least it looks like it. And it wasn't advertised. You know, it would have been much harder to get if it, if it said C-Lab Aquastar. People would have jumped on that. But it didn't even say it was engraved. You really just had to look at the photos on eBay. Um, and so I got it in the case back. Um, I won't be able to show it because it's such small writing, but it says from Smitty to John. And then it says C-Lab 2 with, you know, Roman numerals. Um, and so I got it and I, same thing with, you know, academic or like military. Sometimes it's really, really good documentation. Um, C-Lab 2 is well documented. So I, I did a lot of research looking into reports to find, okay, well, it's tricky because I want it to be, I want it to have belonged to an Aquanaut. You know what I mean? Like, I don't want it to necessarily be like the C-Lab support vessels custodians watch. Mm -hmm. Although it's still neat because they were involved. But you know what I mean? Ideally, the, the Aquanauts were kind of the superstars of C-Lab. Um, they're the ones who, you know, who lived under sea like that. And unfortunately, the, the, the names on the back are Smitty, which is clearly a nickname, and John, which is probably the most common name you could possibly have. Um, and so I found reports of the roster from C-Lab 2, but there were like three Johns, ju just who were Aquanauts, right? So that didn't help. And then they didn't use nicknames on, on the official rosters. So, so see, you know, so Smitty could have been anybody, likely Smith, yeah, right? But still, there were John and Smith are probably the, the hardest names to, <laughs> to research. And so yeah. it was not it was not easy. Um so I ended up reaching out to the U.S. Uh, Naval Undersea Museum, which is, I think, in Keyport, Washington. And um, 
a lady there was extremely helpful. They have tons of archives. She sent me just just tons and tons of photos. Um, and I was actually able to find, so we talked about MSST, those, that was late seventies. So I can find scientists who were involved who are still around. Finding scientists who are, or, or aquanauts who are involved in the mid sixties is, I would say it was more difficult, right? Um, because they weren't academic, they didn't have academic emails I could just easily find. Um, but nevertheless, I sort of persevered and I was able to find, talk to maybe three aquanauts who were involved um, in the mid 60s in Sea 2. And there aren't many around now. Um, and they shed some light on it. So, so sort of long story short, um, I, in the images I got from the Undersea Museum, um, I did find an aquanaut, um, his name was Fred Joler, wearing an Aquastar 63 in the habitat. Um, and I found adverts from Aquastar at the same time that referenced that their watches were used in C-Lab too. So it could just be advertising. It said that their equipment was used, so they could have also provided like temp gauges for your dives. Mm. You know, you know how marketing is. I mean, it can be a little bit deceiving. It it didn't expressly say we gave them Aquastar 63s. It just said Aquastar was there. Mm -hmm. um, so I did find an Aquanaut wearing one, which at the very least confirmed that they were used in C-Lab 2 by Aquanauts, right? Um, the guy wasn't named John, so it didn't really help me with my watch. Um, and then I got, so George Bond is sort of like, they call it, they say he's like the father of saturation diving. So C-Lab was all born of George Bond. I mean, it was mainly his idea. He's the one who pushed for it um, and really made it happen. Um, incredibly smart guy. Uh, I, I was provided with his handwritten journal from C Lab to not not the original but you know transcript of it from the the museum or from the yeah from the museum, and in that journal they refer there's like one paragraph I don't remember how long it is it's long but it's a fun read but there's one paragraph that refers to um, the the dive supervisor for C Lab two and it refers to him as Smitty, um, and a couple people I talked to said it probably belonged to to a guy named. Um, I think it's William, but it was W. H. Smith, and you'll you'll I so I googled W. H. Smith W. H. He had a nickname that I trust wasn't a nickname he referred to himself as because his nickname was horrible, like W. The people called him Horrible Smith or just Horrible, um, and so I typed you know Google's amazing, so I typed in W. H. Horrible Smith, and I found a record of him in a a book written about U.S. Navy salvage diving. Um, called I think it's called Mud, Muscle, and Miracles. I still need to read it. But they mm. mention him in there, and they say he's kind of a legend among salvage divers. Um, and so that combined with people saying, oh, yeah, we called him Smitty, and he's a dive supervisor. It lines up. Um, I was able to sort of – so I guess you could say I don't know the history. I think it's pretty likely that this was a watch given by him. Um, he's the only Smitty I could find involved in C-Lab 2. I, I do have photos of him wearing – of him in C-Lab and wearing a watch, but he, uh, a lot of military folks do this, but they wear it on the inside of their wrist. Mm -hmm. And so it's, it's unfortunate because every photo I have of him is like, if he wore it like, like you should, you know, it would be, it would be visible, but it's always on the inside of his wrist. So I can't tell if it's an Aquastar. So likely it was from him. So yeah, I documented my whole sort of journey with this. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't know if it was actually in the habitat, but it was certainly there. You know, I mean, I think it's likely it was there with with the dive supervisor, at, at least um, during C-Lab 2. The years line up. I mean, everything lines up with it. 
Um, and that's probably the best I'll get. I mean, this happened in 1965. Chances are I'm not going to uncover a bunch of new information. These people, these aquanauts didn't care about their watches for the most part. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, a lot of them, you'll ask them and they'll just say, oh, I just had some old, you know, whatever watch they gave me or I just, you know, they don't care. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of the story of that Aquastar. So it was it was worthwhile enough to include in the book. Um, and Pete, Pete, you know, he kindly signed a copy for me and sent me a copy of the book. And um yeah, it's cool. I can open up the book and, and see this watch that I own in it. So it's kind of fun. Uh, that's got to be cool, hey, to kind of have that immortalized in a publication as well, too, even even yeah. with the other online publications, but then to have it in a physical book, that's a, that's a pretty neat experience, I imagine, and your whole story kind of highlighted in there as well. So Absolutely. I guess, obviously, historical significance is something that drives a lot of what you collect. But what, like, really, yeah. if you were to kind of boil it down, what is it that you look for in the pieces that you pick up or what you consider for, <laughs> for a piece that will adorn your wrist or uh, be in the collection? Yeah. So, it's, I mean, I like quirk, you know, I like the kind of oddball kind of quirky stuff. Mm -hmm. um, that being said, I've, I've owned, I mean, a Seiko turtle in itself is not really that odd they still make turtles they've made them forever 6309s are relatively common 6306s are obtainable mm -hmm. um but it's like you know sort of like that sleeper like uh i don't know you know i'm not that into like limited editions and i don't buy a lot of new watches but um but something that's just hard to find you know knowing like oh i have something you're really chances are you're not going to run into too many people wearing any of the same watch as you. Mm -hmm. But like really like having a, you know, people talk about like sleeper, sleeper watches. Um, something like the MSST is like, to me, it's sort of like the ultimate sleeper. Mm -hmm. And it, because really everybody's going to think I'm just wearing an old 6309, mm -hmm. you know? Um, but yeah, I tend to like quirky stuff. Uh, I'm a creature of opportunity. So, I mean, if I see something that has C-Lab on the back, even if it's not a watch I want, I kind of still buy it if for nothing else just the story but um other watches i i own i like dive watches i mean generally speaking i would say most of my collection is is dive watches mm -hmm. um i have i like quartz i don't I'm, i don't i'm not um what i think is sort of an elitist like it's got to be automatic or it's not like a legit uh maybe for a while that's sort of a hive mind thing i think a lot of people it's like it's got to be automatic. If you're a collector, if you're an enthusiast, auto is the way to go. But um, I like, you know, the age when quartz crisis hit and, and companies started trying to manage that mm -hmm. and not go under. I think company, a lot of companies that unfortunately did go under, but a lot of them did. Well, even ones who didn't like the, and a Rolex Oyster Quartz to me is a super cool watch. Mm -hmm. Um I don't have one, but I think they're neat. But, you know, these these small brands that tried to navigate that started putting quartz movements in. And you can still find these watches for a fraction of the price of an automatic counterpart, you know. So uh, so I have like a, a few sort of unique um, quartz dive watches that I really enjoy. Um, one, I think, is kind of fun. I guess if people can see it on here. Mm -hmm. um, so this this is a... Um, uh, so it's basically a rebranded Doxa Sub 600 T. Um, it would have been from 1981-ish, but but it doesn't say Doxa on the dial. It says Princeton Tectonics Tech 1600. Okay. And so I, I I hunted this model for years, for probably two years at least, um, 
because there's adverts out there that show this model. Um, Princeton Tectonic is an American scuba. Well, now they mainly make like flashlights, but at the time they were a scuba company. So, so I think their most well-known product was um, called the bottom timer. It was essentially a, a stopwatch that you could dive with. Okay. Um, you can t- type in Princeton Tech bottom timer on eBay and you'll find a handful of examples of this. It just looks like a heavily sort of protected stopwatch. Um, and so they were pretty popular I, it was my understanding, but um, they didn't really do much for watches. Uh, and then in the early 80s, they must have contracted Doxa, you know, Aubrey era. They con- they contracted with Doxa to have a line of dive watches produced to sell in their catalogs um, and likely in their store. But I'm guessing most were through catalogs. And um, yeah, it's got the classic, classic Doxa. Yeah, I mean, we just saw that new release from Doxa, mm-hmm. the Sub 600T. Um, this one's slightly different, but it has the same sort of indices, those shark tooth indices. And it's a chunky watch. I mean, I want to say it's like 15 millimeters thick ish. Um, it's big, it's stainless steel. So obviously, yeah, it's just like 14 millimeters. Um, yeah, I love it. It's quartz. Some people don't, you know, don't dig that too much. I like quartz and it's on an expand row, you know, so it's on that classic like docks okay. bracelet, yeah. which those alone, you know, now are, are hard to find, obviously. Mm. Um, looks like it's in beautiful shape as well too. It's it's in real good shape. It runs really well, um, and 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 the case is actually different. So most Aubrey Doxes that you'll see, um, vintage or the new the new reissue, um, they have a four o'clock crown. Okay. So this one it's a little hard to tell, but this one's got a three uh, right there. You can sort of see it. So this one has like a big three o'clock crown, um, and there was only like one Doxa model that had that, and it was in Aubrey era towards the end of their Doxa's initial run. Um, and they're also extremely hard to find. Hmm. So, so, I mean, Aubrey doxes are rare. Finding one that three o'clock crown is really hard to find. And then of course, finding one branded by a scuba company. Um, I think, I just think it's kind of special. And if you want like a, a chunky 600 meter dive watch, you know, it's, it's really a great, uh, I really like this one. So I, I got this one last year. This is one of my more recent pickups. It came, I think it came from Canada. I don't know how they hmm. got it, but, uh, yeah, they, it was a dealer. This one wasn't from eBay. They had it listed, and we worked out a price, and yeah, you, now it's mine. Do you find that like with these ultra niche pieces as well too? Like you, like you know, you go from a Doxa to it being a Quartz six hundred T to then going mm-hmm. it to being a Princeton labeled Doxa. Like, yeah. you, you start to get to a point where like these watches that have this significant history and they're really really interesting. <clears throat> essentially nobody knows what they are you can really you can really get the opportunity to get uh like really good deals on these pieces then you can yeah i mean i mean i think i'm not an expert on watch pricing and all that but i think it's safe to say that watch prices almost across the board have climbed Mm -hmm. right in the past five years whatever past couple years with covid probably Mm -hmm. um so yeah, obviously I think the price is higher than what I would have paid in past years, but, but yeah, they're totally overlooked. And if you know Doxa, you, well, and as you said, like people who know Doxa know classic Doxa. So they know sub 300 T's, mm-hmm. T graphs, maybe sub 300s. Um, Aubrey, just, just now Aubrey had this sort of, sort of resurgence. Mm-hmm. A lot of people still think Aubrey's ugly and it's, <clears throat> If you're stuck on the design language of the original sub 300 or 300 T, then yeah, it's, it's totally different. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I think I, but yeah, to answer your question, I, it didn't seem like I had a lot of competition to buy that watch. Okay. Right. I got it for less than they were initially asking. 
I don't know how long it was listed before I found it because I just found it by chance. I really I troll eBay quite a bit, but this was just listed on some some like independent seller, you know, some some dealer's site. And uh, I just happened upon it when I think when I was researching the watch a little bit more. So it was just it was just luck. And yeah, I don't think people were banging down their door to get it. I probably uh, people on Instagram seem to I mean, I think people like it. But like mm. you said, they just don't know it exists, you know they wouldn't know it exists. It's such an obscure, uh, but I, I love that obscure stuff. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's obscure little discoveries, of course, things I can get a good deal on. I, like anybody, I like finding a good, you know, a good deal. Mm-hmm. Um, I have one. This one is another one of my little quartz divers and you can't really make it out too well in this, if you're on YouTube here, but um, it's a this Zin. is essentially, yes, yeah, this is a Zin 809 is what yeah. it is, but it's, but it's branded for Elgin. Um, so, you know, it's not branded Zin, but the indices are painted on the underside of the crystal, mm. which you very rarely see. I mean, that's not a common thing, probably for, for a lot of reasons. If I cracked my crystal, I couldn't get a replacement and my watch would now have no way to tell time accurately. So I'm not saying it was the best decision to make it that way. But if you're this one, though, so this one was sitting in the back of a lot on eBay in the U.S. Like it was it was in a lot. It was like tucked in the back. And I just happened to be able to make out what it looked like. And I was able to work with the seller and they were like, Oh, so I'll just sell you just that one. If you don't want the others. And we worked it out. It was, I want to say, I want to say it was under a hundred bucks and um, it's super cool. You know, 20 ATM. It's like, it's like eight millimeters thick. Wow. Um, yeah. I mean, it's just, it's great. And that led me to a whole co- connection between um, Elgin making watches that were identical to Zip. Um, I actually found a, an Elgin chronograph that was also quartz, but it was cased in the same case as uh, I think a Zen 142 or something. One of the big like uh, Zen chronographs. And this was also from like probably the 90s, 80s or 90s. So, yeah, I like finding little weird little connections that maybe haven't been explored. So is it marked uh, made in Switzerland or made in Germany? Uh, Swiss made is what it says at the bottom of the of the dial on this one so so the parts yeah, weren't provided so the parts weren't provided by zin this is essentially just like a rip off of their design or well it's it's hard to say i mean it's it's the i don't i don't even know if that was like a zin proprietary case back then because there are there are quite a few models that have this this same case okay you know um uh the hoyer there's a hoyer that has um the same case um a scuba pro that has the same case. so you know there's you can find divers with this case. Mm-hmm. Um, what what really sort of got me was the handset and crystal mm-hmm. um, are exactly the same as a Zen quartz, 809 quartz. And that crystal is so bizarre. Mm-hmm. I mean, it could have been, yeah, sort of like, I don't want to say a knockoff of Zen, but I mean, it's not like Zen was wildly popular in the 80s in America. No, I mean, the, right? only, the only place I've ever seen anything printed on the other side of a crystal like that before too was the... Uh mark ii speedmasters the original oh. mark ii speedmasters with the uh like the tachymeter was printed on the underside of the crystal so oh, that really? was yeah that was the only yeah that was the only uh the only other place i've ever seen that used and, and for that reason like it made it it was a massive pain in the butt when you get your your watch serviced by a third party provider if they can't get an exact replacement piece then you can't replace your uh you can't get your watch back to the level of functionality it should have when it leaves the factory so yeah very interesting huh. <laughs> Yeah, that's a, that's a weird one. So that's, I mean, they're they're all tool watches. This one I won't talk about long, but this one's a little uh, 
this one's a, a, a brand called Seba. Okay. And it's a de- it's got a it's got a capillary depth gauge built into it, you know, nice. MRPSA case, um, and the same thing. That was probably like a sub sub hundred dollar. Found it listed on eBay, and um, you know, I, it's got almost. I mean, I don't know how much you can see, but it's got like these orange accents that mm-hmm. are very sort of Speedmaster. You know, the, the what is it? The Speedmaster MK2, whatever it was that you just said. That Speedmaster that has the orange accent, like the racing dial. Yeah, yeah, that kind of thing. So it has that cool design and yeah i just can't resist it's quartz also so i just can't resist like a just a a, a cool case or a cool design um you know and, but i have some i have some run-of-the-mill stuff i have my 6105 which is a standard you know sort of like willard that was one of my first vintage seikos i found it on sort of like a craigslist kind of site in a bunch of watches and back when they were more attainable you know they, they've caught those have climbed quite a bit mm-hmm. and i've got a pogue you know i've got I've got a handful of Seikos. I'm, I'm a huge Seiko fan. Um, and then, yeah, you know, that's, that's the majority of it. So a lot of them, I honestly don't go looking for, mm-hmm. I, if it's, if it's good, if I see it on eBay, it's a good price. You know, it's, it's that whole idea of like, if I don't like it, I mean, I can always sell it in the future or, you know, maybe give uh, one of my buddies, if they're looking for one, give them a better deal. Um, but, but truth be told, a lot of times I, I end up, liking them more than i thought i would mm-hmm. the, the pogue is a good example i'm not really a chronograph guy but um yeah i love that pogue i mean mm-hmm. it's it's really a fun watch so so yeah that's that's and i have like one dress watch um i have a um i said i'm into tool watches i went down a little bit of a rabbit hole with um ug universal Genève, mm-hmm. and i bought i bought this one for my brother you, it's so reflective but it's a white shadow Okay. Um, and so I want to say this one was from the seventies. So you can't see it on, even on the, the video here, but it's got this crazy dial. It's like a steel brushed dial and all white shadows were stainless steel. So, so the pole router gets, gets a lot of attention, uh, rightly so it has that whole history. You know, there's a lot of history with the pole router, Yeah. not as much, not as much with the uh, white shadow, but they made white shadows, golden shadows and gilt shadows and white shadows were stainless golden shadows were gold solid gold and then gilt shadows my understanding is those were gold plated right um so this is all stainless and it's just got this crazy stainless dial with like tapestry crazy tapestry like 70s looking effect all over it and it's um these i think at the time were the thinnest automatic watch you could buy this one's under seven millimeters thin so like you know i i showed you from the front but i mean wow. you can see it's it's, it's extremely thin yeah um and it's like 35 millimeters wide. It's got kind of like a tonneau. It looks like a tonneau case that they just like squished, right? Mm. Um, no seconds hand, you know, little black stick hands, black text. Uh, I don't wear it all the time because it really feels like if I just like move my hand too fast, it's going to like blow apart. Okay. You know, it just, it feels very, I mean, it feels well made. It just, it's like when you're wearing dive watches every day, mm. something that's, that's six and a half millimeters thick with a micro rotor movement just feels uh fragile you have to worry about it more right it, yeah i mean i i think i think that's safe to say i definitely do whether mm-hmm. i should or not it just feels like getting it service is going to be a hassle because it's a micro rotor mm. and it and I, I so but this goes back to that whole collecting thing that i like where i've i've never seen another example with this dial you know okay. there's other white shadows but i've never found one ug did a lot of weird stuff crazy dials you know um you know, stone dials, wood dials, dials with crazy designs like mine. 
Um, and I had never seen another one like this. And, you know, every collection needs one or two dress watches. So, so yeah, I picked it up for my brother. He had it for probably at least a year and wouldn't sell it to me. And then finally, I don't know, he got desperate enough for another watch and he let this one go. So, so I, I benefited from that. That's awesome. So what yeah. would you, what would you say like, is a, I mean, you've talked about a lot of, uh, like not necessarily like the tier one brands that everybody immediately oh, yeah. goes to. Right. So what would you say are like one or two of the brands that have a significant or ish, interesting history to them that is sort of underrated or, or off people's radar that maybe they should reconsider and maybe they could still get a really good deal in as well too. Yeah. Um, man, that's a good question. I mean, there's, the thing is, is none of my watches, I mean, I would have previously said Aubrey era Doxa, mm -hmm. but now they're becoming, I mean, I guess you could get a new one, but if you want vintage, um, probably I, I don't know about whole brands. I mean, most of the brands have been sort of picked through at this point, you know, I mean, and, and in terms of interesting history, I think, I think I haven't found many that weren't, um, that aren't well known. So like a good example is C-Lab 2. I wrote an article called like um, the lesser known, it was not a clever title, the lesser known watches of C-Lab 2 or something like that. Okay. Um, and in the course of me researching my Aquastar, I, I sifted through, I don't know how many photos. And I just, you know, and as I'm doing it, I, I documented any watch I saw. If I could identify it and I saw it on an Aquanaut's wrist, I kept a record of it you know i noted what photo that was and what watch it was and what aquanaut was wearing it um and you know you obviously had rolex on, on basically everyone and then you had blanc pond which is super well known and, and extremely expensive the 50 fathoms um but then you have things like uh you know zodiac seawolf mm -hmm. um Enikar sherpa um these are all things that i wouldn't say they're hidden gems in you know in vintage watches they don't command prices that a Rolex or a Blancpain would, but they're certainly not mm. not under the radar, right? Um, Aquastar, again, I would have said Aquastar. Mm -hmm. um, Deep Stars have been expensive for quite a while. Benthos, you know, Benthos, they're pricey now. They were more affordable years ago, but um, even the 63s now, you can't really pick up on the cheap. You know, they're, they're expensive, so... Um, but but I would say underappreciated brands with some history. I still like Squala quite a bit. Okay. I um you know there there is a modern Squala and uh, I've owned one. I got rid of it, but it was uh, my first like big watch purchase. It was like the first time I spent over five hundred dollars on a watch. Um, it was well made, but vintage vintage Squala I think is worth looking at for people. Okay. Um, you can also. It's worth noting that Squala provided these cases to other companies. Mm -hmm. You know that was common back then. Um, but a lot of times you can find Squala cased watches that aren't branded Squala, right? Um, so a lot of great skin divers from them. And then uh, something I've looked into more recently is, is um, I, I don't know if I love the term Neo Vintage, but I know some people use it and I know what context they use it in. Um, so I think we're pretty much talking 90s, 80s, 90s maybe. Um, but Zen is one that I, I'm a mm. fan of the company and I think that you pretty much need to keep an eye on um, eBay Germany. Really, I mean, obviously it's a German brand. Um, that's where you'll see the majority of them. But I think that that sort of neo-vintage 80s, 90s Zinn, um, Zinn as a company has some cool history, but I just think those watches um, are super cool. They have some super cool designs. And really, uh, my brother has a couple Zins, but he picked one that's up recently that was called 8826. 
and it's 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 an obscure reference but it's it's kind of a field watch it's like mm-hmm. zins sort of looks like an iwc um with like you know arabic numerals and a triangle that, that almost flieger look um but this thing's from the eight i want to say early 90s late 80s but it's fully titanium um chronometer spec uh like easy adjust bracelet um full loom dial uh, it's like it's like it's under I want to say it's under eight millimeters thick automatic you know sapphire case back you know all these specs um, and this was a sub thousand dollar watch mm-hmm. and all of those specs I mean if you tried to find something comparable you talked about like the Pelagos um, Pelagos is awesome I mean you're talking fully titanium great specs great bracelet from what I hear I haven't owned one but um, but this watch was made in the probably the early 90s mm-hmm. and and if you compare that to say like an early 90s explorer or something which you'd be paying you know thousands for right um this watch sort of has it all you know it you can that go anywhere do anything watch it's almost like the 556 that they make now um but better in my opinion you know it's it's 36 millimeters it's crazy thin the bracelet tapers really nice i mean just to get those specs back then is pretty phenomenal. Um, yeah, well, Zinn has know. a really interesting history. Like you, you kind of highlighted some of it right there, but they have a, a yeah. unique history of working, particularly in Germany and within their allied nearby um, yeah. other countries, in providing pieces to uh, law enforcement, military, uh, you know, any yeah. sort, even you know, uh, projects and expeditions and things like that as well too. But it's one of those ones that like no one really talks about. It's mm-hmm. not really it's not really something that they're in your face about or anything. I mean they have watches that, you know, they'll they'll mark as like a GSG nine dial uh, yes. watch or something like that. But they've been doing that for a lot longer than when they started kind of, you know, promoting it on the pieces that they're putting out. And they're all very limited in the pieces that they put out as well too. Uh yeah. that, that are marked with specific units or uh sections of the government or military that they work with. So it's another one of those brands that really, you know, you never know what's gonna kinda kinda pop up and all of a sudden you realize it has this cool backstory or history with it as well too and they're awesome watches that i I think have one of the things i've always loved about zinn is that they have a completely unique design language that um you know it's there's so many brands that regardless of them being big or small brands they're making black-faced black bezeled dive watches right whereas you know zinn really has found a way to kind of create its own identity in the space which i think makes them a really really cool brand yeah. Well, and some brands um, just don't, you know, it, I think Rolex is, uh, I think, as we sort of know, is like the great, com- you know, everybody compares to Rolex mm-hmm. and Rolex is, well, and Omega to some extent, but they're both really good at highlighting their history. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, sometimes too much, you know, um, I mean, Rolex people, there's a whole issue with Rolex that I don't want to get into, obviously, mm-hmm. with the current market and stuff, but like, I'm not a chronograph guy too much. So the whole yeah. moon watch Speedmaster thing in your face constantly, it doesn't really, I like it, but I only like it to a certain point. Um, Zen and I would say Zen and, and Seiko too. Seiko's not, they're better now, but they weren't historically great at highlighting um, their history. Just recently they've started um, highlighting Antarctic history a little bit, which I think is cool. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, you know, I wouldn't be, so bold to say that 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 Cole Pennington and I contributed to that, but it is nice to see that. I mean, Seiko's been supplying watches or had watches in Antarctica since the '60s, the '62 mm-hmm. Moss, um, the '6215 or '6159, and they they barely 
you know, Grand Seiko might say, oh, we have a dial inspired by the, the glaciers of McMurdo Sound, but, but really highlighting like we've been providing um, watches in a place as harsh as, as Antarctica for 50 years or something. I mean, to me, that's super cool. And I'm a little biased, um, but Zinn also doesn't, I think Zinn had a, what they believed originally was one of the first chrono automatic chronographs in space. Mm -hmm. um, I think that that was sort of debunked when they discovered uh, the Pogue mm -hmm. and also the uh, Movado that I think Cole Pennington wrote up for, for Hodinkee that we just discovered like last year. I wasn't involved in that, but there was a Movado uh, subsea data cron or, you know, something like that. That was also used uh, the same same time as the Pogue. So sort of a tie now for first automatic chronograph in space. Um, but Zinn, yeah, Zinn had watches in space. They have, um, they supply, like you said, they have some, I think, um, the GSG-9 or whatever, I think is like submarine related. Is mm -hmm. that right? And GSG-9 is like their counterterrorism team. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So they have that. And then I think they supplied watches for like the Iditarod, like, mm. a, you know, dog race. And, you know, so they have some kind of interesting stuff. And Zinn is, I think, now among collect, you know, enthusiasts, um, they're known for like, uh, the tegumented watches and uh, you know U1s that are good to some crazy depth and oil filled and titanium and all this. Um, it just sort of, I was sort of amazed to see that, that that's not a recent development. That's mm -hmm. not like, oh, starting in 2015, we started making really adventurous watches. In the early 90s, they were using titanium, you know, and doing all this crazy stuff. Um, yeah, and, and it resulted in like a really nice, still affordable, um, I mean, that's subjective, but yeah, I think still affordable tool watch. Obtainable, um, I'd say. Yeah, I mean, yeah, obtainable. Obtainable for a normal person. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the biggest barrier to, to that sort of neo vintage Zen is really just finding it. You know, yeah. it's hard for people to find. Um, it, it was such a German sort of market exclusive, or at least primarily. It may not have been exclusive to Germany, but it was certainly most mm -hmm. popular there. Yeah, it's like it's helpful to know somebody in Germany or at least be able to frequent German eBay. Um, but if you can get your hands on one, yeah, they're super cool. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When, and I think you brought up an interesting point um, and, and sort of highlights your important role that you have in the community and in the space is like in this, I guess, hype era of watches that we're in right now where everything is just the big brands shoving their advertising down your throat all day long, their history, you know, really you're just hearing about the history of four or five brands all day long. Would you say it's sort of to the detriment of the community and the rest of the hobby that it's not as apparent or that we're losing some of the, uh, we're losing out on some of the history of these other brands um, because everyone is so focused or has so much focus on Rolex, Omega, and those other brands that are really highlighting their history constantly and almost sort of making it seem like they're the only brands with history in the watch space in, in the way they're presenting it. Yeah, that's a good question too. I mean, I think, you know, as far as like to the detriment, I mean, it obviously is not to a detriment to Rolex and Omega to, mm -hmm. to advertise because it's, it's a, a huge sales driver for them. But I do think that brands like, especially established brands that have been around quite a while, like Seiko, mm -hmm. um, you know, I don't know if it's a cultural thing to just not feel like we're sort of bragging about what we've done. But I mean, you know, this is marketing. And I think that if they're not going to highlight their brand's history as much as 
I think they should, or if I think I maybe I know more. I'm not saying I know more than Seiko does, but but maybe about my specific Antarctic connection, I mm. might. You know, there may not be anybody who who, who knows too much about that. Um, I think I think it's. I mean, I don't know that I would say I play that important of a role, but I do want to bring to light brands that deserve attention that maybe aren't getting it themselves, mm -hmm. right? And some of the brands that don't even exist anymore, but brands like Seiko who are maybe just too humble or don't feel like they need that, whatever. Um, yeah, I like to I like to highlight these brands and, and, you know, hopefully the difficulty in obtaining like a Rolex, maybe that's made people search out other watches, you know, that there are a ton of brands that have cool history mm -hmm. um and sometimes brands that you wouldn't even you wouldn't even expect and cool history is so subjective too uh i wrote a story on my site about a watch that my brother bought on ebay and it was an old um Wittenauer, which mm -hmm. was sort of like cheaper longines um and this is sort of a i mean you may appreciate this this is sort of a canada related article but it was about a um a canoe race in in Canada. Yeah, I know it's a very Canadian story. Um, <laughs> you know, it's about a canoe race, um, and and so the back of this watch said uh, Centennial Canoe Pageant, three thousand two hundred and eighty three miles to Expo sixty seven, Rocky Mountain House, Alberta. Oh yeah, that's like and, three yeah. hours from where I am. Yeah, yeah. My brother, I talked to him before. I was I let him know, you know, hey, I'm recording with you, and um, he was like, oh, you got to drop that not just because it's his watch, but he was like, he'll probably love this story. So, oh, um, yeah, so this is all engraved on the back of this. And it's not a dive watch. It's not even like a, it's just like a run of the mill Wittenauer, you mm -hmm. know? And so I researched this and in 67, um, Canada celebrated the hundred year anniversary. And um, that was the same year, obviously, as, as World's Fair Expo 67. So, so there were a bunch of teams from different uh, parts of Canada competing on this like huge canoe race like this you know i think it's easy to go like oh so you were canoeing but this is not and i was even kind of like that but i mean we're talking you know what did i say yeah three thousand two hundred eighty three miles so this wasn't like a jaunt this was like and this was canoe and and portage you know so yeah. they were they were hiking it um and these people were were crazy like mm -hmm. they like this was like this canoeing was like everything to them and um yeah 10 of them competed i'm kind of looking at my article at the same time because it's been a while since i wrote it but yeah 10 teams competed um represented by eight provinces and two territories um and i was able to find a few people who competed and they were like oh yeah i received one of those we all received a watch for participating and like you know, I think like the winners got Longines and then like, or the top three teams and then like the bottom seven got um, Wittenauer's or something. And this person had it engraved. But yeah, this, uh, it t I don't remember how long it took them and I don't want to waste time looking through my article. But, but yeah, point being, this was a crazy, crazy uh, race. And I have some pictures of the race on my, my, the article. And these, it's like, just like these super jacked Canadian dudes. Like, and I thought, oh, cause I've canoed before here in the U.S. And, you know, it's like on like a river or whatever. But these people, it's like, it looks like whitewater canoeing. I mean, it's like, it's unbelievable. And uh, yeah, it's just, it's crazy. And so um, that's a brand that, yeah, people aren't crazy about Wittenauer. And if they are, they're looking for like a Wittenauer chronograph mm -hmm. or a dive watch. Mm -hmm. But this is just like a run of the mill watch that's probably worth a, a couple hundred. But it just has such a cool story. Um, 
and I, yeah, I found, I found some video actually of the race. Um, and in the background of, of the race, you can see a big Lajeans band, you know, so they probably kind of sponsored this, partly sponsored this. And then, uh, yeah, I found out Gordon Lightfoot, I think sort of a Canadian treasurer, um, wrote a song for, for this, this uh, celebration. Hmm. The, the Canadian Railroad Trilogy is what the, the song is called. So if you're a music fan, it's worth listening to when you when you read my article just to kind of get into that that mind mind frame, you know? I mean, yeah, I totally appreciate the cool Canadian connection and local connection yeah. to even where I am, too. That's wicked. I, I, I'm going to have to go back and kind of look through that myself, too, just for some of the laughs. Uh, that's just what, what a, like, a stereotypical Canadian thing to do, just have a massive canoe race in northern Alberta. That's hilarious. But Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it talked about, like, you know, at a certain point they got um, some mucklucks, Oh. And you know, like it, it is. It's a very like the the Gordon Lightfoot connection, and all yeah. of it is. It's it feels like um, it feels like it lines up with with probably stereotypes. But yeah, what what people would assume is a very Canadian activity and That's adventure. Cool. And cool. yeah, it's it's it was a crazy adventure. So yeah, yeah, check that out if you're if you're interested. But definitely, um, definitely, yeah, it's cool. Well, and I think like you know, you, you hear so much about like Rolex and like military connection and uh everest and obviously again going back to omega with space but you're really uh, with a lot of what we've discussed today have been highlighting like c lab for example right yeah where it's one of those things where it's more well known but it's still not one of those ones that's in like the general public's purview of incredible scientific eras of discovery right like you know people you say c lab it's like oh maybe i've heard of it but i don't really know a lot about it right so yeah leaning into that history and your contributions to writing about c lab and continuing to learn more about it too i think is really creating uh, something of significant value in the space for sure yeah i hope so i mean there there's a there's an element to what i'm writing about i mean it's i'm writing about watches sometimes it's not even really about the watch. Even this Whitnauer article, I mean, I couldn't write, I could, but I would basically just be adding a bunch of fluff that nobody wants to read. If I had a, you know, it's like when you're in um, college or something, you know, it's like if I have to write a thousand words, I could, it would be a lot of pointless um, blather or whatever. Therefore, so it's I, an and such. Yes, exactly. <laughs> I can I can do that pretty comfortably. I don't love it, but, uh, but you know, this this article, just using that as an example, you know, but, but the C-Lab one is the same thing. It, there's only so much to say about an Aquastar 63 or a mm -hmm. nondescript um, Wittenauer. It's just, it's just a, the watch is literally just a vessel for me to tell a bigger story. Mm -hmm. um, and I think you see that a lot with, uh, that's why it's so great working with um, Cole a couple times is that's a lot of what he does is, you know, it's the watch is cool, but um, even the MSST it's cool, but the only difference is some additional writing on the dial. Other than mm -hmm. that, it's the same as every, almost every 6309 and every 6306. Um, but there is an element, too, of, of excuse me, especially C-Lab. Um, these stories are going inevitably going to be lost. If we, mm -hmm. you know, if we don't if we don't pursue them, it's just, we've just missed out. You know, mm -hmm. it's like it's almost like when people say, like, oh, you know, I want to interview my my great grandfather about everything and record it just so i have it on record you know it's like watches are maybe important to us but these are very small parts of a much bigger picture mm -hmm. and the opportunity to get that story firsthand um from aquanauts from military whatever canoe racers uh yeah that that's part of what i feel like there's a little bit of responsibility there um and and it, it's watch adjacent enough that 
I can write about it because I'm not a huge history buff. It seems like I am now maybe, and maybe I am, but um, yeah, watches are really just a, a, such a small part, you know? And, and I, yeah, I feel like that's, a, that's important. And so I, I like telling those stories when they pop up for sure. No, I, I think that's incredibly well said. And you really hit the important point of like the duty to make sure these stories continue to be recorded and told going forward or else they're going to be lost to the tides of time and they'll lose their significance. So I think that's, that's really, really a good point to, to bring up and a good point, I think, to end on as we are running yeah. past an hour now. So <laughs> I, uh, you know, Justin, it was incredible talking to you. I, I really like, I done my research, a little bit of research before, before this interview and just, yeah. you still just blew my mind with some <laughs> of the stuff that you shared and some of what you had to say and, and, and really get really capturing the scope of your contributions to the space and showing us some incredible pieces with fantastic stories behind them. Um, really quickly, where can people kind of interact with uh, your content and what are some kind of landing spots for people if they want to reach out to you or just engage in sort of what <clears> you've been <throat> putting out into the space? Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it. Um, so, so my Instagram, I'm pretty active on Instagram uh, and I'm pretty good about responding. You know, I'm not anywhere near popular enough to be overwhelmed by messages and, and I'm happy to answer. People have questions. I get a lot of people looking for, Hey, do you have any info on this watch I'm thinking about? You know, mm -hmm. I don't want to, full-time verify people's Seikos, but um, yeah, reach out to me. It's, it's, it's the underscore Restorian. So W R I S T O R I A N, uh, which seems like a good pun, but some people just don't get it. Um, but the Restorian and then my blog, which, like I said, I, I don't do any sort of like um, update every Monday or anything on my blog. These big deep dive kind of stories come up when they come up and mm -hmm. a lot of them take, take a month or more for me to research to a point where it's worth worth um, putting on my site, but but that's just therestorian.com. So you can check it out there. You can reach out to me, and I mean, honestly, I you know, obviously, I'm pretty into watches. So you, you feel free to send me a message, follow me, whatever. But yeah, I, I really appreciate your time today, and it's been it's been fun nerding out a little bit on uh, <laughs> some of the stuff that I'm interested in. No, absolutely, and definitely those listening and those watching, go check out uh you know justin's instagram page check out his website you know read through some of the articles there's some incredible stuff on there really really well detailed and uh definitely an opportunity to learn something really cool about maybe some lesser known brands or some brands that maybe haven't gotten the recognition they deserve up to this point it's, it's a really really fantastic uh resource that we have here in the community likewise for myself uh you can check out my episodes or check out my show on uh, any of the podcast platforms. It's, I'm on all the big ones. If you also enjoy it in the audio medium but would like to maybe see myself or Justin or some of the cool pieces we're talking about in a video medium, you can head over to the Rico's Watches podcast YouTube page as well too and check out almost all the episodes there get uploaded with a video. Uh, likewise, if you have any questions, comments, feedback for myself, you can shoot me an email at the Rico's Watches podcast uh, Gmail account, which is Rico's Watches podcast at gmail.com. Com, or reach out to me through Instagram at uh, Rico's Watches Podcast on Instagram. That's typically where I do most of my posts and updates, and you can kind of follow along with uh, guests, what I'm up to, and uh, episodes as they get released. Once again, Justin, thank you so much for your time. It was fantastic chatting with you today, and I really look forward to uh, following along with uh, the work that you're going to continue to do and put out. And have you back on the show sometime to talk more about history of other significant brands and, and maybe share some more stories that I think people would absolutely love to hear. Yeah, that, that sounds great. Just let me know when the time is and I'll be there. 
Will do. You take care and you have yourself a wonderful day, okay? Thanks. Bye-bye.